You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Well, thanks be to God, and thank you, Jennifer, for reading that for us this evening. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I sure would love to sometime, someday. We're really thankful, like Clint said, for your patience and flexibility here with us tonight. While I am still waiting on test results, uh, I am still symptom-free, feeling great. So hopefully, uh, at least I have made it through. And because of my meeting with several others uh, after my exposure, hopefully they will have made it through as well. Uh, strange days, these that we're living in, and it, it seems that these will continue to be strange for for a many more months. So we'll just keep going as we can and trust the Lord as we do. Well, when I was in high school and college, uh, I had a gigantic binder of CDs in my car. I went with me wherever I went. Uh, My senior year of college, I got my first iPod and that was basically the end of that. But at the end of my sophomore year uh, of college, I made a mixtape. It was a CD, but we called them mixtapes back in the day. I don't know why we did that, but they were the best. Uh, you could put time and thought into a collection of songs and then give these mixtapes, these CDs, as a very thoughtful gift. Um, and on this particular mixtape that I made, I wrote on the CD, I burned the CD and then wrote on it, Windows Down. And the rules of this particular CD was that you had to listen to this mix very loudly and with the windows down, making no apologies when you were at a stoplight, like track after track of just slapping and bopping windows down songs. Like, I don't even have to explain to you what a windows down song is. You just know. And I handed those CDs out like candy to my friends, and it was a very well-received mixtape. It was a great springtime windows down jam. But I also had a mixtape called 38 Degrees Outside. I was very poetic and deep when I was like 20 or 21. And uh, 38 Degrees Outside was way more introspective, was way more melancholy. And I didn't give that mixtape out to anyone. Like that was for me. And 38 Degrees Outside was private. And I think that's really revealing. I think that we think that like upbeat bops are meant to be shared and experienced communally. Well, we're not quite sure what to do with the sad and the introspective. And the same thing is true for the Psalms. And the same thing is even true with our prayers and our emotions. The language of lament is a stuffed down, atrophied muscle in the majority of the white American church. And I say the white church because it is a muscle that is of cultivated strength in the black church, born out of slave spirituals and then through felt and actual inequality into the present. Uh, Even sometimes when white and black churches are singing the same exact songs, like even just the nuance of the chord structures and the chord progressions underneath identical lyrics and identical melodies are often much more complex, much more dissonant, reflecting a felt dissonance of life. That even if you personally don't have the lived and felt experience of many of our black brothers and sisters and neighbors, which we'll have more to consider as we go throughout this psalm, the language of lament is still a necessary muscle that we all need to strengthen. Uh, In his incredible book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, this is so good. 
I encourage you to just go find this right now. We'll have this eventually. Well, we'll have it on the, the book cart when we begin meeting again, but you shouldn't wait. You should buy this now. Uh, and in fact, he has another book that was already scheduled to come out in July called Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, anyway, Mark Vrogop, uh, in his incredible book, uh, he says this, Lament is the language of the people who believe in God, but live in a world with tragedy. He says, while writing this week, I've been involved in a funeral for a precious man who died suddenly of a heart attack. I've tracked the progress of a teenager who is fighting bone cancer, prayed for a woman who has to face her, face her rapist in court, sought the Lord for a pregnant mom who learned she has breast cancer and prayed for a young woman whose dad tried to take his life. Every one of these believers knows that God is good and they all believe that he's in control, but life is still hard. He wrote all that in just one week of pastoral ministry. Now, Mark pastors a church of 4,000 people, so the quantity of suffering is just going to be more. But in almost four years, we have counseled many of you through nearly every single, every single kind of the same scenario that he just listed, and more. Uh, some of you right now and ongoing in those kinds of scenarios, not to mention the more minor, but just as emotionally difficult situations of job loss, of uncertainty, of loneliness, of anxiety, and just sadness. So thankfully, God has given us his word which includes not only models of lament, but the permission to pray these prayers of lament. So we're going to think through this evening how Psalm 6 uh, teaches and models us, opens the pathway, the doorway for lament through four sections tonight in what prayers of lament are. And that is this, four sections. The prayers of lament are honest prayers, confused prayers, desperate prayers, and confident prayers. Honest, confused desperate and confident. Let's do it. In verse one, honest prayers, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Now we don't know the context or the circumstances of what and why David is writing and praying what he is writing and praying here. It appears that David is not just downcast and troubled, but that he's also perhaps feeling some kind of guilt for sin. He is worried about God's anger and discipline. There seems to be some level of awareness of sin and repentance throughout this psalm. That's why historically within the life of the church, Psalm 6 has been used during the Lenten season, the time before Easter, a time of repentance. But rather than assuming that God either one doesn't know or see or two that God doesn't care about any of this, David speaks honestly to God about where he finds himself. And then he, then he calls out to God to be kind to him. He says that he is languishing. We don't use that word very much, but languishing. He says that he needs healing. His bones are troubled. Again, we don't know what's going on here, but he seems to be in some very real physical pain. There have been some serious medical diagnoses in the life of our church this month, and not just a few positive COVID tests, but at least one of the diagnoses that will have lifelong, very real effects. And an honest prayer of lament is often the best prayer to be uttered to the Lord. I am in pain, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to feel right now. Have mercy and bring relief. 
speaking to God in honesty, not merely resignation. But while many of us are willing to consider those kinds of prayers for when we are in times of physical pain, we are perhaps less willing to bring our prayers of lament to God in times of our emotional pain. Times of thinking and experience that I I want to be married so badly and I'm not. My, My marriage feels impossible right now. My marriage is crumbling or it has crumbled. Life today just feels impossible. It feels like it's crumbling or it has just feels like it has crumbled. I've lost my job. There is global pandemic and potential economic depression. There is violence. There is oppression. There is racism. There is injustice. And oftentimes we just don't know what to do with that. But the scriptures, the Psalms of Lament, again, are not only giving you permission to pray prayers of brutal honesty to God, but they are modeling for you how to do that of just speaking honestly to God. This is allowable as a Christian of, I am exhausted. I am lonely. I'm in pain. I am the victim of injustice. I am grieved by injustice. We'll link another great blog post in next week's weekly email, but Eugene Park wrote this late last week. He's, I, I rarely read something at length uh, with you here, but I'm just going to do that. Um, Eugene Park, in talking about injustice and all of the things that we are seeing and observing in our city streets and online and in our conversations. He's talking about prayer and uh, he's countering the idea that uh, thoughts and prayers, this kind of thing, ought not merely just be dismissed as um, inaction. But he says that prayer is activism in secret. A commitment to prayer is the true litmus test of whether we're actually acting in good faith or just jumping on the justice bandwagon. If we make prayer foundational in our activism, it also cultivates a natural compassion and empathy, which helps make our convictions for justice more sustainable. He says a life of habitual prayer, especially on behalf of our African-American brothers and sisters, ensures we act not only out of emotion or trendy value, but also out of genuine love for continual prayer for someone naturally binds our heart more closely to their plight. As John Anwuchekwo writes, prayer replaces apathy with compassion. Through prayer, we find out that it's impossible to pray for people and hold on to bitterness or indifference toward them. So this week, this month, this year, hopefully for the rest of your life, as you are learning more and more, as you are having more conversations with our black brothers and sisters, with black neighbors and friends, as you are reading more and learning more history, as you are growing in more empathy and compassion and even outrage, pray. Not as the end, not as the end, like a cul-de-sac of, of action, like the only thing that you do, but Prayer as the road on which you are walking for change, in humility, in love, moving toward others for the forgiveness of their sins and for their experience of justice. We're hopeful to be even able to announce some ways to even be doing this more congregationally in addition to our individual relationships. But using Psalm 6 as a prayer of lament and repentance, pray honestly to the Lord for the ways in which you have yourself cared more for yourself than for others, both explicitly and implicitly, even in subconscious ways that you, that we may all be thinking or living 
And if you're tempted toward thinking that you've got nothing to personally reflect upon during this boiling over moment in the racial history and the racial present of our nation, well, pray that God would help you to even be more humbly reflective. Not necessarily that you would begin to feel guilty for things that you aren't guilty of, but just because you don't feel guilty about something doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't demand repentance. Consciences can be seared in all kinds of ways, and there are all kinds of sin that people don't necessarily feel guilty about and yet need to be repented from. So in honest prayers of lament and repentance, pray that God would reveal your own heart. I read this week that a judgmental heart owns a hundred microscopes and no mirrors. So pray that God would help give a big old mirror for the changing and reconciling piece of the gospel to begin to change our own hearts, to begin to change feelings and actions and loves. And if you don't really feel the need to pray these prayers of lament, these prayers of repentance, why not? That's a, that's a question worth asking. Is it possible that you aren't listening to centuries-old voices for justice and for equality? And if you're listening to these voices, but your first response is, yeah, but what about, or yeah, but have you seen or considered these statistics? Now, no doubt we should consider statistics and use sound reason when now beginning to think towards pathways forward. Uh, Roads of destruction have been paved with good intentions. But perhaps consider deeper seedbeds of partiality that might lie underneath your reticence. Your reticence to believe the experience of so many of our neighbors. Before we can pray honest prayers, we need honest self-reflection. But prayers of lament are not just honest. They are oftentimes also just confused. Secondly, confused prayers. David goes on in verse 3. He says, My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Like a whole lot of times in the Psalms, if David was like meeting in one of our GCs and we're like in a, a prayer circle and David is over here praying some of the prayer, the prayers that we read of him writing in these Psalms, like we might be in this prayer time and we might hear what he's saying and like kind of open one of our eyes and give him like a worried side eye. Like, uh, David, I mean, like, are you allowed to pray these kinds of prayers? Like, He's asking, oh, Lord, how long? Other places, he says, will you forget me forever? Why have you forsaken me? Like, David, man, don't you have a good theology over the sovereignty of God? Don't you have a good theology of the faithful nearness of God? Well, yes, he absolutely does. Just keep reading the rest of the Psalms. And it is often the honest and confused nature of many of David's prayers that then get him to the place of confidently trusting God. We'll we'll get there at the end of this psalm also. But deeply trusting in God does not mean a stoic resignation to everything just being the way that it is or the way that it's going to be. The world is broken, and that's just the way it is, maybe sometimes we might think. Well, it is, but that's not the way that it was created to be. Life outside the garden is difficult. It is unjust. It is full of pain and death. Creation groans and nations rage. To paraphrase the great Cormac McCarthy, 
The rain falls upon the just and the unjust, but mostly on the just, because the unjust stole their umbrellas. Why is there strife and racism and inequality? Why is there war and death? Why is there cancer and MS and COVID-19? I don't know. And it doesn't show a lack of faith to actually admit that to God. I don't know and I don't understand. David is saying, how long will you continue to allow this? Whatever it is he's talking about, we're not quite sure about in Psalm 6. He's saying, I don't understand why you aren't acting. And so he reminds God of his steadfast love, more of his his covenant love. He is reminding him of the promises that he has made to Abraham and to Moses and even to himself. Because all of that is true now, God. Just respond. You've made these promises. Now respond. How long will you not respond? I don't get it. Even the bit about Sheol, the, the Hebrew word for the place of death. We won't get into a fully fleshed out theology of the afterlife here tonight. What David isn't saying is that after death, there is no living. There is no hope. There is no worship. We can let the more clear parts of the Bible help us to interpret the the more difficult ones. We can even let the more clear parts of David help us interpret the, the more difficult parts of David. But what David is lamenting here is the sacrificial worship and the remembrance of God in the tabernacle. If David dies, if the righteous of Israel die, who is going to man the right worship of God? This is almost exactly what Moses was praying and interceding with God to not destroy Israel back in Exodus 33. Moses was basically saying, remember your promises so that your worship can go on. So that your fame and renown can grow in this life and age so that others might see, might hear, might know now. David doesn't understand if he and others go to the grave, how will the remembrance of God be, will will continue? So calling on God to remember his promises is not because we think that he's forgotten, but that the fullness of them might be known and realized. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, That prayer is a prayer of lament. It is a cataclysmic prayer of the end times, that God's kingdom, heavenly kingdom of perfection and beauty and holiness and justice might be made known on earth fully and finally, cataclysmically. But it is also a prayer for the here and now in a million smaller ways, that the heavenly kingdom of justice and rightness might be made more known on earth in our church, in in our society, in economic and political ways in structural and systemic ways. We are individually sin-sick sinners. So Christians who have a theology of the depravity of man ought to be the first ones to understand that depravity can and will taint structures and systems just as easily. And yet the kingdom of God has not yet fully come known on earth as it is in heaven. And so life right now just doesn't make sense sometimes. God could act decisively right now. Fully and finally, kingdom of heaven made fully and finally known on earth. He could act decisively, but it appears that efficiency isn't too high of a priority for God. There must be some greater value, some greater priority behind his lack of action. And we trust that he is good. Sometimes it's confusing, but again, 
It's not only okay to pray prayers of confusion, but here it is modeled. The very subtitle at the top of Psalm 6 shows that this prayer was later put to music and then sung corporately as a nation, together and corporately crying out to God, how long? When will you act? So it's then more than all right to take this on corporately and individually for us as well. So prayers of lament are honest and they're confused. Why? How long, O Lord? And then third, it just keeps building. They become desperate prayers. Verse six, I am weary with moaning, David says. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Some in our church know exactly what David is talking about right here. Maybe you have experienced that last night, this week, today. Others don't know quite what he's talking about. And yet crying is a fundamental human expression of emotion. Sometimes we are moved by an experience of overcoming adversity and success. So like a, a happy cry, uh, an emotional cry at the end of, a, of an inspiring movie or something. A cry of happiness or gratitude. Still other times, because we're moved by a deep sense of not overcoming adversity, but of adversity overcoming us or adversity overcoming others, we're moved to tears. This is seemingly what happens to Jesus in the moments before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He knows what he's about to do, and yet he still weeps. He sees and observes and feels and experiences the world as it is not meant to be, and he weeps. Though he knows he is about to make a major move in reversing the curse of death, Jesus knows that this is not the world and experience that God has intended in creation. But in the same way that Jesus is weeping is not hopeless or despairing, Mark Vrogop says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. All humans cry, but only a Christian can truly lament. Why? Well, it seems that death, sickness, injustice, and sin are reigning victoriously. The Christian knows that they are not. There is a sovereign ruler who is greater and who has broken the bonds of them all. But in the meantime, there is sometimes not much more that we can do than just cry. While death and injustice are still on a leash, they are doing all kinds of damage in this life outside the garden. And so crying, not, not in despair that leads us away from God into greater degrees of faithlessness, but crying in lament, a desperate but confident turning to God. This kind of crying, lament, becomes the pathway to deepening faith and of greater praise. And this gets us immediately now to our final section, that prayers of lament are honest and sometimes confused and often desperate, but they are confident prayers. David, the, the, the tone and the mood then changes in verse 8, where he says, depart from me. He turns and he looks and he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Songs of lament, prayers of lament, come from people who know and trust that God is not asleep at the wheel. That he will 
finally act, that he will bring justice decisively. Who, like the psalmist in Psalm 94, another psalm of lament, who, despite this psalmist being also surrounded by evil and injustice, that psalmist also confidently shouts in verse 14 of Psalm 94. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Confident declaration of a God who is there and who will hear. But at its core, to lament is to complain. But it is to confidently complain to God, not to complain about God. Like imagine your friend opens a restaurant. So one night you go to the restaurant and when you use the restroom, the restroom is filthy. Like it is an absolute mess everywhere and you're washing your hands next to someone and you kind of make eye contact with that person who's also washing uh, their hands and you share like a, a cringy, like this is really gross kind of a moment with each other. Like that person, the person you're washing your, your hands with, that person who has no relationship with your friend, the, the restaurant owner, and doesn't really care to have a relationship with that, with your friend, like how will your responses to that, that bathroom be different? The other person may not do anything about it. Maybe they don't care about restroom cleanliness and they may or may not ever come back to this restaurant. Maybe they were so grossed out by the bathroom that they'll just never come back at all. Maybe they'll take a picture of the bathroom and they'll get back to their table and then just trash the restaurant on Instagram or on Facebook. Maybe they go straight to Yelp or Google reviews and then just one star that place to oblivion. They were so grossed out and upset that their response will then range somewhere between indifference to publicly complaining slander of this place. They don't care about the economic livelihood of all of those connected to the restaurant because of, the, of a bad experience. They want that place shut down. But what would your response be? You might get back to your table and ask your server if your friend, the, the owner, is maybe in the building that night and he comes to your table, the owner does, and boy, this is really awkward, and like, I don't almost know what to say to him. I'm not really sure how to put these sentences together, but you tell him of your experience, that the bathroom is just a disaster. What you are doing, you are lodging a formal complaint with the management of this establishment, but why? Well, because you love your friend. Like indifference isn't an option because you care about the reputation and the success of the business and of your friend. But complaining about your experience to others also isn't an option because you care about the reputation and success of the business and of your friend. You know that the best way to care about and to improve the reputation and success of the business is to go straight to the owner, to go straight to your friend. Now, what if you know your friend, though? And you know that your friend is like just an absolute slob. Like everything is always a mess, no matter where he goes. Maybe your bathroom experience just confirms your life experience with him. And when you go to your, his house, it's a disaster. His car is a disaster. Disaster and uncleanliness just follows him wherever he goes. Then maybe you don't actually want to call your friend over to the table because there's no use. But if you trust in the cleanliness of your friend, 
if you trust in his care for the restaurant and for people, if you trust in his willingness to hear a complaint like this from you and then respond, well, then you can be confident, no matter how awkward, that this conversation is worth having. You love your friend. You love the restaurant. You love his reputation and the success of this business. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. There are a thousand reasons to lament right now, to lodge formal complaints with the management of this universe. This world is a broken mess. And if you do not feel reason to lament, then consider that you live in the safest and most antiseptic bubble from reality in all of human history. And I'm talking to myself right now. You don't have to feel guilty about that, but your privileged protection from sadness and desperation is not normal. It is a brand new and isolated blip on the timeline of humanity. Do not let wealth and safety and success become a sleeping potion to the cries of lament around you. But if you are currently crying these prayers of lament, or you're wanting to but not knowing how, well, do so honestly, even while confused. Do so desperately and yet confidently, not wondering if God is there and is listening, but because of your faith that God is there and is listening, that he will respond. All humans cry, but Christians lament. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who broke the reign of sin and death through the power of the resurrection, will one day bring resurrection life to all of his new creation. Believing this doesn't bring an escape from the sadness, but it brings hope through the sadness. It doesn't bring indifference in the sadness, but it brings action amidst the sadness. To lament is to be a Christian. I hope Psalm 6 becomes a model for us, gives you permission to actually pray these prayers honestly to God. Psalm 7 is also a prayer of lament. Uh, so far in our six Sundays of preaching through the Psalms, we've gone straight in order, Psalm 1 through 6. Uh, we probably won't do this through 150 of them. We might jump around a little bit, especially if there is some thematic repetition I think we'll be in Psalm 8 next week. Um, my hope is that someday we come right back to Psalm 7. It just may be a couple years from now. But there are psalms of lament throughout the entirety of the psalms. It's good for us to take time to slowly consider them, not skip them, but to inhabit them. And for us to inhabit the language of lament. I hope we can do so individually and corporately together. Let's begin that even now as we pray now. Oh, Father, we are saddened by the world around us. We are saddened by our own sinful and indifferent hearts. We are saddened by injustice. We are saddened by needless death. We are saddened by partiality and disparity. We are saddened by injustice. And we don't know what to do or say or think oftentimes. And so we pray that you would help us to not quickly in our outrage or our sadness, just simply move toward activism. Yes and amen, but help us more quickly move to prayer. Help us more quickly move to lament. 
teach us what it means to pray. Teach us what it means to be sad, even amongst just the everyday loneliness and sadness that many of us experience. Help us to come to you, for you, Lord Jesus, are with us. Spirit, you inhabit us. Help us to uh, draw near to you and trust in your promises that you will draw near to us. Father, you are a good father. We trust that you are there. We trust that you are hearing. We trust that you will respond. And even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and make things right decisively and fully on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.